0: Hello creeps. Welcome to the Horror Vanguard. I'll be your ghost. I mean host for today's exciting tale of terror. Mandy or of psychedelia and socialist anti-realism. <laughs> <laughs> Dear listeners, Co-ghost and producer Ash here. We recorded this episode one day after the attempted insurrection in the capital of the United States. I wanted to open this episode with a hearty fuck you to fascists. Remember that we protect us and it is only through collective action that we can protect each other. Reach out to the IWW about organizing a workplace union, connect with your neighbors and tenant activists, build solidarity and comradeship wherever you are able. There is work to be done and you have an important role to play wherever that might be. Never forget that a better world is possible. And as always, stay spooky. Hello everybody and welcome
1: to HV 2021. It is, it's It is—it's—it's a weird year, but we are glad to be back with you. I'm John, joined as always by my co-ghost, Ash. Ash, how you doing?
0: hi (laughs) good energy you know know, i i I am 30 or 40 years old and i fuck this (laughs) that is that is the energy we are carrying into 2021 (laughs) i i am like i've reached this kind of like ascendant state where like pure boiling rage and like love and hope have like they're they're reforging my psyche on a daily basis, and I don't know if humans were meant to go there. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, you know what? I think that's an entirely uh, an entirely kind of appropriate headspace to be in to be talking about this film. If we're talking about um, the, the, the 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 coagulation of uh, rage and love, and the the psychic place that few dare tread, as we are talking about the infinitely memed film mandy uh, a heavy metal revenge thriller um as it self-describes before we get into the film first a word from our sponsors this program was made possible by contributions from listeners like you go to patreon.com slash horror vanguard and get access to bonus episodes and other exclusive content thank you Give me if i don't stay around to watch i just can't cope with the freaky stuff now we're talking about manly today uh it's it is a a rich film it's an interesting film um for people who have not seen it i it, it might come off as a kind of as a bit as a bit or a bit strange but that's not the case and so ash For the first time this year, would you mind explaining to people what today's film, Mandy, is all about?
0: All right, listeners out on podcast land, are you ready to talk about how Napalm Death and Ansel Adams are doing the exact same thing? Because I am. (laughs) Swiss photographer Ernst Haas stated for his love of colour film, I was looking for it. I needed it. I was ready for it. I wanted to celebrate in color the new times, filled with new hope. Haas made this comment in 1951 as the aftermath of World War II was truly beginning to settle and new realities solidified. Our time reflects that post-war period. However, like a true reflection, it's flipped. We are in the mirror period where a weight drags down all reason to celebrate, and even the act of embracing a lover requires one to first push aside the cognitive change forged by capitalism in decay. Our labors are at once as Herculean as they are Sisyphean. This leaves us with a hunger greater than that known in Haas' time. Simple color film has become overexposed through corporate utility. It is no longer the language of Haas' new hope, but a language of advertised and focused grouped messaging. We are losing our taste for color, as commercial as it has become. We long for, need, something new to taste. We are starved. Panos Cosmatos brings us a strange new sample of taste. Another landmark photographer, Ansel Adams, once remarked, I prefer the term extract over abstract, since I cannot change the optical realities, but only manage them in relation to themselves and the format. Mandy is not a surrealist rejection of our time, but an embrace of reality. This, in Zizek's terms, is a real more than reality. Through rejecting this trite objectivism, Cosmatos is able to grasp at our moment, all the rage, the pain, and the near-ballistic fervor that pushes us through in search of those greener pastures where we can finally lay down and rest. Drink deeply of the truth that the only way out is through. I leave you with a poem changed only ever so subtly to embrace the clarity forced upon us in our moment. He is propped upright in some last lost corner of his life awaiting the only new thing left to see. He cultivates memories rich and brown, like gardens. Hardly eighty, his eyes already inward turning, he has banished himself towards the fine grey dust. Tonight, wrapped around a chair, he rolls another damp cigarette, and sends those blue clouds on their familiar reach into the bag of weathered yarns. And like some deft and protoplasmic being, turns himself inside out to feed on the cacophony that is me. Welcome to our discussion of Mandy. Uh, uh, chills. <laughs> L- literal chills. It's it has
1: been it has been too long since I have had the privilege
0: of listening to you do I'm one on. of those. Yeah, that one was really fun. I really enjoyed writing that one. <laughs> <laughs> so let us
1: talk about mandy what is ostensibly on the surface a kind of pretty straightforward piece of film but is maybe one of the most visually interesting definitely one of the most sonically interesting films i've seen in a really long time um wait
0: wait where, where do you want to start um i think i think you know we should start this movie right where it opens right because one of the first scenes in this movie, we get read, uh, played by the one, the only, Nick Cage, uh, dri- uh, driving o- in his car. Oscar winner, Oscar winner, Nick Cage. <laughs>
1: we're
0: just going to put some respect on his name, you know, he's... That's true, that's true. Uh, one, one of our opening shots is he's driving and he's listening to part of a speech by Ronald Reagan, right? And I think it would be easy to kind of dismiss that as a bit of temporal setting, Right. You know, this movie wants to remind us that it's in the 80s. These are contemporary political events that happened in the 80s. You know, here is your reminder of that. He's not listening to Bush. He's not listening to Trump. He's not listening to FDR. He's listening to Reagan. But I think what I would want to highlight is I would want to go one layer deeper than that. And like he he kind of like he doesn't just turn off the radio. He doesn't just switch it to something else. He's not just surfing. He really punches at the dial to stop Reagan from talking anymore. And it's interesting to me that the speech that Reagan uh, was giving at the introduction to this film, right, it's a speech about a return to traditional values, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 the proto-fascist groundwork for the far-right movements that we're seeing today being laid by Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, this movie is opening by rejecting that, by by tossing that aside, by tossing aside the notion that we need to – Uh, uh, return to the antediluvian past in order to heal our present. This movie, before it even begins, it begins with that as a founding conceit. I mean,
1: uh, the thing that I want to kind of take that a little bit further and say that, like, actually, so my reading of it is that Reagan was basically an imaginary president, right? He, He projected, the reason he was successful is that, is his connections with Hollywood. There's a kind of fantasy, a libidinal republicanism that he embodies, right, which is tied up in that nostalgic, backward-looking, uh, quasi-religious rhetoric. Mm-hmm. But but what that does is it does place this film, but not in any actual existing temporal state. You know, the, I, I put in our little note, Doc, it happens in a 1980s, not the 1980s. Mm-hmm. You know, it happens in the cultural. It's 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 a it's an imaginary 1980s, and I don't mean that in the sense that it's not true, but it's an it's an it's an 1980s of the imaginary. You know, that's why you have the the the, the links to, to to Reagan and to the kind of 80s music and 80s film. Uh, but it's it it's cultural signifiers. So we're trying to, from the very outset, from the very first kind of words of the film, we're trying to get away from. This idea of a kind of cinematic naturalism, which I think is super important, right? We don't want to go, but we're not trying to recreate the past. We're trying to reimagine it. And I think that's that's a really key point to bring out.
0: Yeah, I, I find this movie's exploration of the 80s to be incredibly satisfying. Because, you know, like I've said in the podcast before, we are now entering into the fourth decade of the 1980s you know mm-hmm. we are we are retreading and recycling and unearthing and continuing to dig through 80s culture yeah and i think that the, you know it's it's oversimplified to write this off as another in this this chain of 80s nostalgia cinema i think mm-hmm. i think mandy is doing a lot to to not be a nostalgic 80s movie while still being an 80s movie
1: i mean the thing that defeats nostalgia in this film anyway, is the fact that it's deliberately weird. Like Mm -hmm. nostalgia, nostalgia is at its core supposed to be reassuring, right? It's, it's, it's an, an affective comfort blanket. That's why we all have kind of like nostalgic pleasures that we enjoy because they remind us of something better in the past. This is this is not reminding you of something better in the past. This is kind of like peeling back the kind of psychic layer of comfort that nostalgia carries with it and plunging you into something far weirder uh, and violent
0: and psychedelic in a way that I think is super interesting. I completely agree. I think like like this is this is a vision of the 80s that would have been unreadable as 80s in the 80s
1: which yes, I think is, is
0: really important for this discussion, right? Like a lot of other 80s products you could have taken back, like the Ghostbusters remake, right? Like you could have taken that back to the 80s and played it and people would have been like, oh, this is a readable addition to the Ghostbusters franchise, right? Whatever criticism beyond that they might have. But like this, like you take you take Mandy back to the 80s and like it's only culturally readable as the 80s here in the 2000s.
1: Yes, yeah, I no, I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you.
0: Um, uh, as everybody knows,
1: that's that's the phrase that's going to kill you if you're playing the horror vanguard drinking game.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree. I've been trying to mix it up lately. With uh, you nailed it, so and <laughs> add add some more phrases into this one. But I, I think this winds up being really important for the political discourse of this movie.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: especially in the landscape that we're set in, right? Panos Cosmatos likes to set all of his movies in the '80s, um, but they're not set in the '80s in the same way that, like, even Krampus, right? Like, I love Krampus, mm-hmm. you know, and that is a send-up and an homage to '80s '80s horror cinema, right? In, in, but even even that is kind of to a lesser degree beholden to this commercialized nostalgia, right? And then things like Stranger Things, Str- Stranger Things exists to sell stranger things funko pops you know like yeah, it is it is absolutely. a vehicle for weaponizing your nostalgia for the 80s and and mandy is very much a threat to that it's very much a challenge to that ecosystem
1: and in, in a way if you think about it like if you're if you're a leftist the 80s are not a good decade for you uh in in britain or in america generally uh, the left is is uh, in the mainstream uh, politics, pretty much in the wilderness, uh, it'll make its uh, "quote unquote" return uh, in the kind of zombified neoliberalism of Clinton and Blair. Uh, you know, it's it's not a good time. You know, it's a, a kind of dominant hyper capitalist uh, time. It's the kind of encroaching uh, gray horizon of capitalist realism uh, that you know on an affective and subjective level does genuinely seem to leech the color and life out of everything um and then you get films like this which are a deliberate provocation i think in a both a political and aesthetic sense
0: yeah (laughs) (laughs) i'm trying trying to avoid saying the catchphrase (laughs) <laughs> um, I, and like, I, I think, I think like every aspect of this movie kind of feeds into that, right? You know, mm-hmm. like, like obviously we're we're going to be talking about like the, the use of color in this movie and how this movie isn't afraid to just completely wash out a shot. Yeah, you know, like th- yeah. this this movie isn't afraid to just kind of cut to animated sequences, and and it's like it's not afraid to let Nick Cage just be Nick Cage, right? He he's got a very signature style of acting. You know, uh, like, and I think that's part of what comes together for the whole of this movie. Uh, I'm just,
1: I'm just going to put it out there. Nick Cage is a great actor, uh, but he is a great actor outside of the terms of what we might call cinematic naturalism in performance. Um, you know... the cameras capture everything right that's that's the whole point which is why there have been generations of of film actors who've been trained in restraint you don't need to show a lot because the camera is you know if the if the director needs to we can get right up close we can do an extreme close up and we can capture the single tear welling in the eye you know so it calls for very naturalistic uh often often minimalist uh, acting um and all of Nick Cage's work deliberately kind of runs against that. Uh, but he's a great actor.
0: I think that's I think that's what makes him a great actor, right? He so he describes his approach to acting as like quote unquote mega acting. <laughs> and like I, I, I think I think there's there's something powerful and historic about that, right? Like Nick Cage is the kind of only contemporary actor that reminds me of silent movie stars. Right. Like, yes. like he is mega expressive. Right. Mm-hmm. He he expresses beyond expression. And I think, you know, like this is what I was talking about at the beginning with, uh, you know, like Zizek's uh, from a pervert's guide to cinema, like a, a reality more real than real, you know, like when these things happen in our lives, these, these kind of like personal incalculable, unpredictable traumas, you know, like, we don't we don't turn more mournfully to the camera and then have a single tear drop and then say a, a completely normal and predictable thing, right? You know we we have a, a mind shredding bender where we scream through tears alone in the bathroom. Yeah, you know, like like that that scene is a more realistic depiction of agony and loss than shows up in any Academy Award winning film. It's, it is not a realistic film with a small r.
1: It is a real film in the Lacanian sense, right? The capital R, real. That traumatic abyss which we can't normally uh, encounter simply because our subjective um, kind of coherence would fracture. It's a film that tries to get at that. It's a film that tries to kind of dive into that uh, and takes us
0: into some very weird places. So do you want to talk about the aesthetics of this movie? <laughs> Absolutely, I do.
1: So how would you like in a more kind of straightforward way, how would you describe this aesthetically to someone who's not seen it?
0: I think that's that's an interesting question because it would force me to try and pick a, a unifying framework that would, that would dictate our understanding of this movie. when this movie is like very clearly devoted to heavy metal, uh, this movie is very clearly devoted to psychedelia. There's a lot of different frameworks that, that come up and it, and it's, it's engaging with a lot of them simultaneously without at the same time, trying to be completely enmeshed in one of these schools.
1: The way that I would talk about it is through the um, surrealists of uh, early 20th century uh, in France particularly. So the surrealist technique, the the thing that they loved to do was montage, the juxtaposition of things which are not supposed to go together because they were interested in accessing a kind of, well, psychedelia, if you take it back to its Greek words, is what is the revealing of the mind. Uh, and this is why there was uh, the surrealists were involved in the Institute for psychical research and dream research in Paris um, they were interested in accessing the mind and that's what I think this film is doing is in its use of hyper stylized lighting color washes over entire scenes uh, animation inserts all of the heavy metal like it's uh, it's a montage but it's not a pastiche right it's not something that is just kind of referentially pointing out to something else to go, hey, remember the thing, which is what a lot of postmodern culture actually does. What it's trying to do is a montage in the original surrealist sense, right? It is trying to uh, kind of create something new out of the juxtaposition of things which are not, you know, formally and aesthetically
0: or stylistically supposed to go together. I think think that that... Is part of what's really important about Mandy, from like a left political analysis, right? Is is this isn't a mere referential uh, a set of iconographies, right? Like like all those all those superhero movies are so beholden to that, right? Right. They're, they're they're soggy with Easter eggs and inside references and little winks that the only way to understand is to uh, further enmesh yourself into that media universe. Yeah. And this movie has like maybe two or three nods to things, right? It's not; it doesn't exist to be a vehicle for for the Panos Cosmatos Mandy cinematic expanded universe. Yeah,
1: you don't have to have seen every other Panos Cosmatos film. You don't have to, uh, you know, know huge amounts about Nicolas Cage or Charles Manson. Um, what it is is. It's, it, it operates on its own kind of like dream logic and it re- requires that you engage with it on those terms. And I think, I think you're right. If you were to just look at the kind of structures of the plot, you know, it's, it's in a way it's a very traditional uh, revenge narrative, right? You know, it's a uh, our, our schlubby everyman hero has to go kick ass and take names because they done wronged his woman. Uh, in the most awful graphic way, which we, you know, we, we don't need to get into here. And if you consider it solely in terms of the plot mechanics, then maybe there isn't a lot here for a kind of leftist analysis. But if you consider it as a whole work of art, I actually think you get so much more out of it than that kind of functionalist
0: utilitarian reading where you just focus on plots would get you. I, I completely agree with that. No surprises here. And I think even with even with like the actual like units of plot itself, right? Like the character work, what's going on in this world, right? Like I I think this this transcends the simplicity of revenge, Hmm. you know, because a a lot of because you feel the impulse to contrast this with a lot of like male driven revenge action cinema. But I think that there's a lot in Mandy that isn't I wouldn't go as far as to say is acting counter to those currents and those trends. But it's also not afraid to play on the limitations of what those genres put out there. Right, Like our hero isn't an ultra masculine super warrior, you know, like it's it's a much more it's a it's a much more spiritual conflict that he winds up going through. Yeah. And like I I think like even even further than that, like Mandy as a character and as a driving force for the story isn't just because a lot of the problems like of revenge cinema that use like, Oh, like my, my wife has been killed and now I have to get my revenge. Like the, the wife could have been a fancy car or a hat or like, you know, you you stole my favorite shoes and now you must die. You know, it could be like literally anything. Yeah. But the character in the presence of Mandy is so key to this movie. Right. She she oh, becomes okay. a, a haunting figure that transcends the entire text and and exists at every level of the movie, right? She is the like, extra planar existence that Red winds up existing on at the end. Hmm. And I think... I was going to say it again. I was going to say I couldn't agree more. <laughs> <laughs> to a 2021 resolution to come up with new catchphrases. Uh, absolutely um no i could i think you i think you you're
1: completely correct that like there is an emotional core to this which and, and really by the end of the film you know red sees sees it, like his self-understanding is, is is almost transcendent right um mm-hmm. revenge narratives can be usually simplistic right you did a therefore b you know, you keyed my car, therefore I'm going to track you down and murder you. Um, but, you know, he, it takes on this kind of like mythic, religious, kind of ontologically shifted endpoint, which, you know, it, it elevates the whole thing out of that normal, uh, like you say, very 80s revenge movie. It becomes something a lot bigger and a lot more fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's it's a revenge it's a revenge movie that isn't about domination. It's it's a revenge movie that's contrasting transcendence. Yes, you know, like we 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 have we have our our Charles Manson, Jonestowny cult leader, who is who is playing at the kind of entranced prophetic vision that Red achieves through the course of this movie.
1: Yeah, and at those costs, you know isn't that kind of really the whole point you go the film presents you with the vision of of the psychedelic transcendence of of genuinely altered consciousness and it goes really you saw what had to happen to get to that point
0: yeah and i think that that winds up being such a huge part of the success of, of this movie is because in a lot of revenge cinema our hero and our villain are negligibly different from each other you know they're kind of the same by the end of the movie. They've they've unified, right? Uh, the Death Wish franchise is such a good example of this, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's supposedly revenge cinema, but by the end, like our heroes are like pseudo genocidal maniacs. And yeah, and in and in, in this movie, it's really like like that final the, the boss fight, the, the final the final conflict, right? <laughs> You know the uh, oh, what is what is the line the, the the psychotic drowns in the waters in which the mystic swims. Yes, I I think that that is so important to reading their characters.
1: So aesthetically, so and kind of thematically and structurally. We're we're kind of making some pretty big claims uh, for this this film. It's tied up in psychedelia. It has that neo-giallo lighting. Um, It is extremely stylized. There's a lot of montage, a lot of juxtaposition of things. Um, But also, in a way, this is two films that have been stitched together, right? This is a very sweet earnest, almost sentimental romance film, a kind of basic two-hander, and it's a heavy metal uh, revenge horror film. Uh, And it is both at the same time, which is a kind of interesting thing to point out because it shows that this film does actually fit into fairly standardized genre conventions, but also even in so doing, it's still doing this kind of juxtaposition so what do you think about the fact that this is essentially two films, that this is that kind of sweet, almost sentimental romance, that two-hander with Andrea Riseborough and Nicolas Cage, and and at the same time, it's this horror revenge action movie?
0: I, I think that, again, speaks to the reality of Mandy, right? And, and how, how this film is, it's ultra sanity, right? It, it's, it's transcending the mundane to achieve realism, you know, like <laughs> I, I struggled to to kind of like encapsulate what I was thinking about Mandy, right? And then it occurred to me that like this very well could have been like a Ziga Vertov Kino Pravda film, right? And in an attempt to display a reality that is necessarily far stranger than kind of flat documentary could ever depict, right? Because you could do the same plot as Mandy with nothing but flat documentary, right? This, this okay. is a '70s. This is a stock '70s exploitation plot: evil biker gang, crazy hippie cult. Uh, your girlfriend gets kidnapped and murdered, and now you're out for blood, right? This yeah. the, the there's nothing innovative there. It's bog standard. But uh, I, I think Panos Cosmatos is able to push things so much further by, by giving up on this kind of uh, uh, objectivist approach towards cinema. And there's there's such a heavy gravity to everything in this movie, because isn't life just as absurd as Mandy is like, like. There's nothing in Mandy that happens outside of like some of like the, the, the surreal graphics at the end, right? Like, like those, those two uh, the, the, all the planets orbiting and the crazy mountains and stuff. like the, the kind of heavy metal psychedelia, but like outside of that, like literally if I found out tomorrow that there was a hyper mutilated biker gang that took bad LSD and they've been driving around the Pacific Northwest kidnapping people, uh, maybe uh, maybe a six on my shock meter because I'm wondering how they survived with those kind of injuries within the American healthcare system.
1: Yeah, completely. To put this in the terms of like a, the very old debate in film theory, maybe the oldest one, is the question of does the camera show the truth or does it distort reality? That's, that's, a, that's a kind of foundational debate in what does it mean to make a film uh uh and it's a
0: question to which Panos Cosmatis answers yes <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think i one of one of the things like so i mentioned Ansel Adams at the top um if you don't know who Ansel Adams is he is a very famous american photographer who specialized in landscape work right like he 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 took he traveled to all the national parks he would take these kind of like grand uh, and beautiful and really deep pictures yeah, what we know Ansel Adams for mostly is kind of like uh, his photography of the Half Dome in Yosemite and like mm. all all of his kind of landscape work. But he also did like a, a lot of stuff that it wouldn't be too far off to call it surrealist, right? Yeah, um, like he, he did he did a lot of like um, pho- photography of aspens at night, like aspens uh, uh, aspen, northern New Mexico, nineteen fifty eight, like. All of these photos of trees and they're just like they, they become these lines that just disappear into the darkness. Right. And, and you know, that that quote that I read at the top about Ansel Adams's work. Right. Like about whether he saw himself as as um, a surrealist or a realist or like what he was doing is he's just trying to capture these images as they are and, and translate them back out. And that's, this is like this f- debate in cinema goes back to when cinema was just like photography, phantasmagoria, chronography, shadowgraphy. Like this is, this is the debate eternal, right? Where it's like, how do you depict the real, you know, like is a, is a still picture of a forest, the real depiction of that forest? Or if like, you know, cause Ansel Adams has a, a false reputation of, uh uh, never touching up his photos right there's a lot of people today that believe that ansel adams never edited and he just kind of shot and ran with it but like you can you can still find markups of his photos today he heavily edited all of his images and all of that heavy processing and editing was designed to achieve the effect he saw there with his own eyes and like the reality that we experience is closer to the kind of phantasmagoria that is mandy than it would be to a dry retelling of these events.
1: Yes, completely. Completely. Uh, I really like that. I didn't know a great deal about Ansel Adams, but that's a that's a fascinating kind of point to make. However, this is not just a <laughs> this is not just a film that's kind of interested in the look of it, right? The big there's a big theme Uh, of music in this right i i want to talk a little bit about um uh the score but we should also talk about uh the uh the cult we should talk about the cult uh led by jeremiah sand the children of the new dawn um led by a a failed musician um and what do you what do you think about that in the context of what, been, what we've been saying about this film.
0: So I, I think, I think for me, like we, we have to eternally contrast uh, uh, Jeremiah and red, you know, like their, their juxtaposition is so key to it, it is in effect the entire movie, right? You know, like red, red is swimming. Jeremiah is drowning, you know, mm. like, like, we're, we're led to believe that like, you know, like Jeremiah is just a very clear stand in for Manson.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know, yeah. And
0: completely. In, in much like Manson, uh, Manson had a, a largely failed music career prior to becoming a notorious cult leader. And we see the same thing in Jeremiah. Right. And we see we see the, the same co- completely unhinged inability to accept reality on reality's own terms and he is constantly trying to renegotiate those boundaries and force reality to be something and like if, if you listen to like the song that he plays from his own band after he's kidnapped mandy right the, the lyrics of the song are all about like this guy being really really great and cool and he's the golden one and he's gonna have kids and you know you can be lucky to be his wife and it's like it's the most like horrid trad cath like 60s junk rock and like it is Amazing. insufferably sufferably bad it, it is it is just horribly horribly fucking bad music right and like I, I think that that makes a a part there's like so many layers to the contrast here but that's that's another one that I find really compelling right is you have like you you have you have the uh uh Brady bomb Brady, Brady mom Marilyn Manson moment right there, there was there was a TV interview. I'm blanking on the actress's name, but the, but the the actress who played the mom in the Brady Bunch uh, was on a panel interview with Marilyn Manson, and um, through through the course of events of the interview, she she wind up she she wound up uh, referring to Manson as Christ like, which is the funniest thing that has I think ever happened on a panel interview on a talk show, but like you you wind up in the situation where like oh you've got like. Uh, you know red who is just like consuming all of these drugs covered in gore you know mm. like he's, he's got a giant axe shaped like the celtic frost logo you know he's just he's just going going absolutely ballistic but he in and of himself is infinitely morally superior to jeremiah just despite the aesthetic trappings and i think a lot of this movie is that that's a microcosm of a lot of what we see going on in this movie. It's pushing back on politics as aesthetics, right? It's pushing back on the notion that you can read a book by its cover, you know, that you can that you can determine the the wholeness of someone's political reality just by looking at them from the outside, rather than actually like viewing the concert of their activities as a whole piece.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? That like. Music has always uh, been one of these kind of transcendental forms, right? It's uh, for a very long time. It was almost an inescapably religious thing, uh, music. And and you're right. Jeremiah's music is awful, and Mandy's response is entirely appropriate, just to laugh in his face. Um, but before we move on from the music, there is, I think. We should just just take a minute to talk about just how fucking cool the score for this film is agreed <laughs> uh, i I don't really have I don't really have a kind of uh a kind of hot take to add about it just um that uh johan Johansson um it, it was a genius um and it is incredibly sad that we will not have uh more film scores to uh, appreciate um if you have never seen the film please do, obviously we want you to watch it but please uh, also do uh, if you've watched it track down the score because the, the score is this incredibly fascinating and atmospheric series of compositions that really makes some of these long slow shots uh without them i think i think the film would feel slightly too long in my opinion without this score i think the film would probably be Maybe about twenty minutes too long, just just my personal opinion. Um, I agree. But with yeah. them, th- this this whole thing is kind of uh, beautiful and brooding and hypnotic. Uh, the score's great. That's that's my that's my hot take.
0: <laughs> I, I I do I do agree with that. That if you I, I think this movie, you know, like the Marvel movies, you could take out the score, and I don't think a lot of people would notice. You know, like like the scores in the Marvel no, really. movies are just kind of like the only superhero score. From the last decade that I remember is is Wonder Woman's music, because it's the worst score I've ever heard. Oh, <laughs> uh, the, the electric um, cello. <laughs> but like I, I think I think for Mandy, like all of these pieces need to come together, right? Because the heart of this movie is a bog standard exploitation film. And if you if you're gonna take a piece that's so well codified like that and so basic and essential you're going to need to do some pretty incredible stuff with it. You know, like if it didn't have the visuals and it just had that score, this movie would have just been lackluster. If it yeah. lacked the score but had the visuals, it would have been incomplete. You know, it's it's the wholeness of the vision. And I think that, that speaks even further to this whole idea of like the limits of just reading things based on their aesthetics, you know, and the need to go so much deeper and to look at things holistically and to look at them in concert with – culture in society right rather than having like broken and reductive readings uh but i think i I think that this is a really good moment to talk about probably the single most important character in this movie would would you agree I, i have been waiting i've been waiting for us to get to this point and i i completely agree i think
1: we have explored the dynamic between uh red and jeremiah quite quite thoroughly but neither of them are the most important character um, neither of them, uh, neither of them have the most important scene in this entire movie.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, the single most important character and the single most important scene in this movie is the Cheddar Goblin commercial.
1: Yes, I I love I love the Cheddar Goblin. I love the Cheddar Goblin
0: so much. <laughs> Yeah. The, so, uh, for those of you who haven't seen Mandy, um, uh, after after all of the most horrific stuff has happened to Red, right? Like like after after Mandy's been kidnapped, after he's seen some terrible shit, you know, he is psychically there's a wound in his psyche, right? In a wound, in, in 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 the very broad sense of the term, not not you can't reduce what has happened to him down to a mere medicalized model, right? You can't just say, "Oh, he's experienced trauma and is now entering shock and depression," right? Like that is insufficient to describe what is happening to his reality at that moment. It is much more sundering. And the first thing we see after that is he goes inside, and the TV's on, and it's a commercial for the Cheddar Goblin. Uh, an in mandy universe uh kind of box macaroni and cheese mascot right and it's uh, so i love the cheddar goblin commercial so much because it's directed by casper kelly uh casper kelly also did too many cooks which i'm a huge fan of um yeah so i think uh casper kelly is like clap 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 very very good stuff going on oh we should probably we should probably talk about more casper kelly later on like night of the living do or something but oh, yeah uh, totally what i find really interesting right is like for me this is the single most important scene in the movie is is when he sees the cheddar goblin commercial right because mm-hmm. i think that this is the realest part of mandy um and and that's because we've all been there you know we've all experienced these kind of horrible sundering events right that this trends this isn't trauma this isn't He's going to be depressed. This isn't this is something as base as that. This is this is radiating. This is cosmic. You know, his reality is over. There is no going back. He has he has experienced, in the uh, Evan Calder Williams sense an apocalypse. You know, just just for two. And what we get in this Cheddar Goblin scene is we get part of the horrible truth of that, and that's the machinations of reality are still rolling. You know, outside of what's yeah. happening to him and in his world. You know, like the the Cheddar Goblin company is still putting out Cheddar Goblin mac and cheese, right? And it represents for us a, a divergent moment, right? Uh, he, he could have either spent the rest of his life attempting to claw back towards the reality he once had, to try and reconstitute it and piece it back together. He could have, he could have taken the Cheddar Goblin commercial route, you know, and, yeah. and like tried to pave over this wound, to constantly stick Band-Aids over it. But instead, he rejects that, right? He rejects that normalcy. He he rejects that impossibility, and he he embraces necessary change and becomes something new through it. All because of you, Cheddar Goblin. The the Cheddar Goblin, uh, for
1: for people who've never seen Mandy, is um, a terrifying goblin creature who, in the commercial, emerges from a bowl of mac and cheese. And then vomits pasta all over two small children. It's maybe the greatest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. But also, I, it, I, I honestly, I, in all sincerity, found that moment really, really affecting because you're right. He's he's been through horror in in the most kind of visceral way. You know, loss, trauma that is almost unimaginable. And there is this kind of surreality to it, right? I, I think anyone who has ever, who has ever, you know, God forbid, has ever gotten the phone call, right, where um, someone you care about has has been hurt and has gone to hospital, um, and suddenly the world carrying on working the way that it always has, almost seems like a kind of joke, right? Because all of that stuff you no longer kind of care about. You know, I, I, I've had those moments where I, you know, I've walked out of a job because I needed to go to the hospital to take care of somebody that I love. Um, and so that idea of having a job just seemed kind of ridiculous, seemed like this kind of surreal, uh, almost dream. And that's the moment that you hit with the cheddar goblin, uh, it's 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 a it's an amazing bit of practical effects work um apparently they mixed the mac and cheese with uh lemon with fago
0: with pineapple fago um, (laughs) to get get the right consistency wow they made Um, my daily lunch that's great uh,
1: but you are you are completely correct right it's the moment of choice right in the uh, in the aftermath what happens you know and sometimes there is no going back to going back to normal in big inverted commas because that's what that's what happens for the rest of the film, right? He just turns away from it, uh, from that kind of uh, the normal world of mac and cheese commercials and TV mascots and terrifying goblins spewing pasta over children. <laughs> um, the Cheddar Goblin needs to come on HV, but yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, I, completely agree with you that it's the most important moment in the entire film
0: yeah yeah i think like because it represents something that's deeply true right like trauma is something you have to move through right like trauma is is cataclysmic right like it's not it's not something that Can be massaged away like so many other problems. It's sundering, right? It's it's your reality being replaced by a new one. Mm -hmm. You know, like it reverberates through the bone, and like a lot of the you know contemporary discourse around facing that stuff is about like you know healing and and regressing to a a pre-injured state and not reckoning the wound. And the whole movie after the Cheddar Goblin scene is is Red having a reckoning with his wound.
1: Yeah. Yeah, as, as simple and as, as complicated as that, basically. It's also, it's also amazing. <laughs> it's also just a great... Yeah,
0: it's, it's also a goblin who vomits up Fego and mac and cheese, which is just, I mean, who doesn't want that? What more do you want? Um, and then it the the scene immediately after that is
1: the, the kind of magisterial scene of, of Nicolas Cage in the bathroom, downing an entire bottle of vodka, pouring it over his wounds, uh, and just howling... Um, which is jo- just just genuinely
0: quite quite amazing. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> drink, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, uh, drink, uh, to take a sip out of the tainted LSD bucket you found in the discount <laughs> Cenobite warehouse. <laughs> so, so was there anything you wanted to say about uh related to the cheddar goblin about like realism?
1: So I wanted to kind of like link it back to uh, everything we've been talking about. Um, And maybe the category that I would put this film into is a critical irrealism. You know, the opposite of capitalist realism would be socialist irrealism. Um, There's a great article that I will see if we can put in the show notes from Red Wedge magazine. Uh, that kind of goes through this this uh, taxonomy of capitalist realism versus socialist irrealism. Um, but they talk about the need for an overdetermined art. Um, and I'm just going to quote a little bit. They say, Our overdetermined socialism focuses on the individual and collective agency of working class subjects. This includes overt political organization, but it also includes dreams and nightmares, spells and curses, angels, and demons, aliens and monsters, failures and libidinal impulses. We will strive for a democratic dream work, a preliminary and collective sketch that echoes Anatoly Lunacharsky's idea of mass democratic God-building. Which is a great description of Mandy, right? It's this uh, extremely democratized dream work space in which simple uh cartoon tv mascots that are there to just propagate capitalist consumption get linked into this mythic nightmare world of a working class subject struggling to kind of articulate these violent libidinal desires do you want to do you want to briefly talk about our our um that would knock off cenobites?
0: Yes, let's have a pointless discussion about cenobites because this movie invoked them and here I am. Yeah, when so see secretly when you solve the Lament configuration, the first thing that appears is a pedantic podcaster from the United States who was there to lecture you about the Cenobites <laughs> before they show up. I am in fact the true horror of the Cenobites. But um so what I find really interesting about the kind of like there's a lot to pick apart in the Cenobites in this movie, and I haven't seen a lot of chat on them, so I thought it was worth it to devote a good chunk of time. Right? There's been a lot of good discussion on Mandy and Mandy's character, in Red and Jeremiah and their dynamics, but like, we're 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 forgetting about our boys in black here, you know? And like, one thing that I find to be really interesting is is f- first and foremost we have to talk about heavy metal, right? Like mm-hmm. like these guys are enrobed in heavy metal aesthetics, right? They've got the They've got the, the Judas Priest look, they, you know, like leather fetish, very Slayer, lots of spikes, but also like much, much darker. You know, it's got that it's got a Rammstein or Marilyn Manson vibe to it with the kind of like fetish attire that's going on there. So so very clearly and again, like just like the Cenobites themselves, you know, from West Craven's work, like all, all of these figures connect back into the same cultures right They're They're connecting back into like like fetish culture, right? They're connecting back into metal. They're connecting back into queer identities, right? Like, like they're, they're part of that networked collective of images. What I find to be interesting about these Cenobites and, uh, you know, listeners can turn back to our episode on Hellraiser, <laughs> which is episode number 73. But like, you know, to turn back and a lot of our discussion of the, the Cenobites was related to ideas of consent. Right. And like mm-hmm. in ethics and morality and what the Cenobites were there to do and how they experience reality. And there's a misconception in a lot of people's reading of the Cenobites. A lot of people read the Cenobites as monsters that take pleasure in pain. Right. Like they're they, they want pain is the misconception of the understanding of the Cenobites. The Cenobites don't want pain. They have transcended pleasure and pain. For them, there is no meaningful distinction between those two things. They are now woven together into a new super state, right? For the uh, I think they were like the black skull gang or something. I was trying to remember like the in-universe name for like the the Mandy cenobites. but um these these centibites are are incomplete, right? Like they lack the fullness of of a proper centibite, right. Like one, like they're they're just out for pain. like we find that when red goes to, uh, get the Reaper, you know, to, mm-hmm. to go hunting Jesus freaks, you know, like, you know, the, the, his, his friend says that like, oh, like, they're in all kinds of pain and they loved it. And, and like that's that's missing that completion. Right. And also, like, obviously, like they have no regard for consent. And so what we what we come to then is that the Cenobites and Mandy are LARPers, LARPing Cenobite identity. Yeah, I see it. <laughs> <laughs> that pause, that pause was so telling. I was like, uh, uh, please, please don't hate what I just said. <laughs> I actually think, I
1: actually think, let's tie this back to the politics, right? Oh, let's do it. In a in a way, the gang that moves drugs is the perfect 1980s business. Mm-hmm. In a, In a way, right? It's entrepreneurial. It's blue collar you know it's it's disrupting um and what they've mostly seen motivated by is consumption right consumption of colossal quantities of uh the, the bad batch of LSD and all the co- um all the cocaine yeah. that they can get their hands on uh you know you just see them doing fat lines of coke um, so it's like what they're interested in and it's very interesting that, right, the LSD is a, is a psychedelic, cocaine is a stimulant. So they're, they're all kind of like tweaked out as well, clearly. Um, but I agree with you that they lack the, the actual genuine beyondness of the Cenobites, mostly because uh, maybe they're too perfect a product of the Reaganite imagination.
0: Well, I think like their, their metaphor is ultimately an ideal consumer, right? Like when we get into their headquarters, like they, these, these Cenobites in Mandy do nothing but consume, right? They're, they're consuming um, all kinds of drugs, you know, like they're, they're consuming pornography, they're consuming violence, you know, like they, they exist as kind of metaphors for, I think, not, not a kind of like Dawn of the Dead super consumer zombie, but, like, that that kind of capitalistic mode of production in itself, that, that cannot stop, right? Whereas, like, mm-hmm. you know, craven Cenobites can stop, you know? Like, like they have limits and boundaries. Like, Kraven cra- Cenobites actually don't like pain. There are things that they don't like. There are things that frustrate them and upset them, you know? Like, they, they have goals and orientation. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas the Cenobites that we see in Mandy here, like, they don't just exist for unrestrained consumption and even in their 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 deaths they're not lamenting the deaths of their friends or like you know if if they are even friends if that's a good framework for this they're like they're just pushing for more and more and more extreme modes of consumption yes absolutely you know
1: perfect 80s subjects yes nailed it it's it's a kind of endlessly fascinating text isn't it because what happens is there is kind of refractions of theme that run all the way through it in every kind of facet of it, you know, from the aesthetics to the structure, to its uh, content, we can, we find ourselves kind of circling back around to these same questions. Of what does it mean to uh, go beyond? What does it mean to kind of break out of um, the, 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 the kind of what we might consider, you know, quote unquote, normal existence, whatever that might mean. Um and that's why it isn't just a kind of revenge thriller, right? It's trying to to escalate that to it's a genuine kind of mythic, quasi-religious experience. But yeah, it's a religious, a religious experience that comes with these kind of genuinely horrifying downsides. Because you, yes, the way out is through, but where do you end? Where do you end up? You know, you end up in this transformed landscape covered in blood, uh, riding off into the uh, into the distance. And if you want to read it religiously, you've ended up in hell. Certainly one way of reading it, reading it religiously anyway.
0: Yeah. What, what, yeah. Do you, what do you think about the ending? So I think in in order to talk about the ending, we have to talk about LSD, you know, and like there, there's a lot of cultural mythologizing that happens around LSD. It happens around every kind of substance, But I think LSD has a lot of like unique proportions to how it is discussed at at large. And I think the contrast between because the Cenobites in this movie were just normal bikers until they tried the tainted batch of LSD that the kind of, uh, you know, dealer up the chain tried to poison them with. And when they were exposed to that, they were annihilated, you know, because their their sole drive is to consume. And for them, LSD was a consumptive pleasure. You know, like, like they were, they're still enrobed in their egos. They're still bound to this, right? Red had his reality stripped from him first, you know, like at the the cheddar goblin pivot, there is nothing left to Red's world. You know, he, he is, you know, he is liberated in the most horrifying sense from the real. And so when he tries that same tainted batch, later in the movie, instead of transforming him into like a, uh, you know, kind of like discount Cenobite, it like, it launches him onto like, uh, uh, almost godhood, you know, it, it, it precipitates the freedom that he's experiencing. Right. And we hear that at the end where it's like, I am your God now. And his voice is transformed and he is transformed. And I think the, the end of the movie is the uncertainty of freedom. You know, because he has some some wounds. So uh, a medical a medical term that I find interesting is some wounds never heal. Uh, it, is, it is possible to injure the body in such a way uh, that it cannot heal itself, but also it won't kill you. It becomes a functional wound is the term. Right. It's, it's an injury that never heals and never goes away, but you can live with it. And what we see in the end here is he has he has learned new functionality, right? Like he, he has kind of like entered into a new scape with this trauma.
1: Yeah, it's a new it's a new it's a
0: new kind of living. Yes, absolutely. And I think like this, it's a horror movie, right? So we've entered into a horrific space, but I think there's something because this, this is the new, right? He's been jettisoned in, into the new, right? This is a rupture in in a lot of senses. And there's something about that that's scary, you know? Like, even, even if you try to imagine it in purely positive terms, right? Like, this movie would have been way scarier for me if, like, after the end, he would have, like, transcended up into the light, you know, or, like, emerged in some kind of heaven with Mandy. Oh, yeah. You know, because maybe it's because I'm jaded, but I would have read that as a hallucination, but because he is just in a new landscape, like it forces us to ask a lot of interesting questions. Like we're left at the end wondering, is this the world he's always been in? Is this set in like some other earth, you know, and this is the pullback to let us know? Or, or is this like because we pull out of his perspective, right? Like we're out of the car. We're, we're up in, in the cosmos now when we see that kind of horizon, this artwork, these planets, and like the we are transcending alongside Red at that point. We are exiting that former plane and into this new one. And that's an that's an uneasy space to be in, right? Like, you know, watching this movie, we didn't ask for that. We're just kind of jettisoned into that world. And I, I think it I think it is hellish. Um, but I I don't know about the term hell specifically for it, because I think that's that's caught up in a lot of ideas of like punishment and suffering. And I think yeah, for What happens to Red at the end of this movie, it's almost a, it's a, it's a transcendence, you know, like it's, it's the hard question at the end of every revenge movie, which is what next? You know, because at the end of every revenge movie, our hero has gone on some kind of killing spree. And it, and it leaves us with a really harsh dangling question that not only what's left, what's next for them on a societal level, because like Red has murdered 10 people by the end of this movie, 10 people who like by all accounts had it coming but like 10 people nonetheless and so it leaves us with a with a kind of a a hanging question at the end of what happens for him and i think like the simplest way to answer that is that he is jettisoned into this new this new and unknowable landscape i think that's a really important
1: point that you made about revenge movies because revenge movies are about trying to get what you want right they're trying they're about the fulfillment of desire right your desire is for revenge because there's been an inciting incident, so you have to go and get obtain the 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 object of your desires. But once it's been obtained, once you've gotten the revenge I, I really do I think that's absolutely the right question to ask what comes next? and that's where we finish that's where we finish on the on the that kind of ambiguous possibility.
0: Yeah, and that, and I think that for us as kind of like beings outside the art that are trying to read it, it, it it presents us a direction, right? It presents us like hope and opportunity. You know, the the landscape is open to us now, even though it is strange and unknowable, right? Like the end of this movie is is the end of any any kind of satisfaction, right? Like, what do you do once you got the thing you wanted? You know, and it's and it's a limitation in a way. Of of petty revenge. You know, like like if all you're seeking is is trite material gain, you can never be free. You know, like like Jeff Bezos exists to make more money, and there is always more money because money is a made-up concept, and you can always have more of a made-up concept. But like, you know, that that creates like a paradoxical ending. But for Red at the end of this movie, there's almost a transcendence of that, right? You know, like there's there's a wholeness and a completion, and that leaves him. In some kind of a new world, right? You know, is he going to go back home and watch the Cheddar Goblin commercial?
1: Yeah, yeah. I I, re- I really like I really like that as as a uh, as a read on the end. So, do you have any
0: other any other thoughts about Mandy?
1: Uh, no, I actually think I think we've covered pretty much everything that we wanted to talk about. Um, it is this it is this weird insightful uh almost mythic operatic film um it's got the cheddar goblin it's got a chainsaw fight you know what what more can you want
0: (laughs) right and like like so this is this is on the list of movies where like like i mentioned this at the end of a lot of episodes for movies i really love where it's like there's so much more to talk about in maddie like we did not talk about deforestation right, in the logging industry, which is truly pivotal to understanding this movie, you know, we we did not, you know, focalize Mandy enough and get to talk about her and her context. We didn't spend our time talking about the other members of the cult and, and how their characters have a uniqueness that adds a lot of, like, agency and depth to what's going on, right? You know, like, our, our conversation of the Cenobites at the end was kind of, for brevity's sake, a little quick, when I think we could have gotten a lot deeper into, like, psychosexuality and how their identities manifest and what they're attempting to do. And the interesting ways that the movie uses to code certain ones as male and female. Mm. Like, I think there's a lot of stuff to talk about and like drugs too. like, you know, like there's a lot of discourse on uh, like, like drugs and drug use and like the, the margins of legality inside of this movie. Right. And also like uh, economic and class realities with people living in kind of like the middle of the woods in a trailer and in these like, kind of like economically liminal spaces you know like i never we never get a good sense of certain aspects of that that i think are worthy of so much more conversation and that 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 to me just makes mandy like a great great movie that even even after an hour long discussion like i could i could see a whole podcast about mandy existing (laughs) oh completely completely and
1: i think you're right the best works of art are never exhausted you know you can always you can always pull out more um right they they exhaust us not the other way around uh who knows maybe we'll put mandy on the list of uh films that we should kind of really think about revisiting um at some point um but this this is our first full-length episode of 2021 thank you so much uh for listening Um, As always, do check us out on uh, Twitter. You can find both me and Ash there as well. And as always, stay spooky. We'll see you next time.
0: Thanks for tuning in, creeps. And remember, stay spooky. (laughs) 哈 (laughs) 哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈哈 Ha <laughs> <laughs>